So it's uh, really good to be here. So it's good for us to have an opportunity to be together tonight. Let's turn to the beginning of the Gospel of John. We're going to be focusing in on chapter 9. I'd like us to start at the beginning with the prologue. John, many years ago, uh, in the early centuries, was called a spiritual gospel as compared with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that's not to say that they aren't very spiritual in their emphases, but uh, the gospel of John is uh, highly symbolic and deals with very important theological themes, deals with them uh, often in a very symbolic, spiritual fashion. And so as we begin the Gospel of John, it, uh, you know, the Gospel of Mark just jumps right into Jesus' baptism. The Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke back up to the birth of Jesus and tell us the story from there. The Gospel of John is the only one that goes back to the beginning, beginning, that is the beginning of creation, the beginning of the earth. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word is a, of course, symbolic way of referring to Jesus, perhaps emphasizing uh, the fact that He is God's communication to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, or the Word was God, and the Word was, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning. And then it begins to talk about how he was involved in the creation of the world. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And you, you can feel it shifting at this point from... The word life used to talk about creating physical life and the recognition that light has something to do with that. I mean, the, the ancients during this time period didn't know about photosynthesis, but they certainly knew that if you put a big piece of wood or something else over plants, they withered and died. That light was necessary to produce that life within them. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. If we realize as we look at that, that we were talking about creation and creating life and bringing in light in creation, but we shift somewhat to a uh, symbolic meaning with the statement that he was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent by God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. So, I mean, here we've, we've clearly kind of shifted away from physical light, like comes from the sun, like was involved in the physical creation, to a spiritual meaning, and here John is giving testimony to the light, who we know as Jesus. And through John, he's wanting all to come to believe in the light. He himself was not the light, 
but came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And so it's fascinating the way John begins his gospel, going back to creation, having Jesus with God in the beginning, Jesus involved, the Word involved in the creation, in, in creating light and bringing about life up from the earth. And then very quickly, the words life and light have made a transference over to a kind of symbolic sense. And the whole book is that way in that uh, sometimes life or light is used in a physical sense. And other times, most of the time, uh, it's used in a spiritual way as kind of a symbolic metaphorical emphasis. Let's turn to John chapter 9. That's where we're going to focus tonight. There's not a lot about light or about life in John chapter 9 directly. That is, the term light is not used, but we're talking about the healing of a blind man. A blind man who has absolutely no light in his life. And then through Jesus, uh, he's given light uh, to, to be able to see. Um, backing up just a little bit to set the frame for where we are, in John chapter 7, John, one of the things that's unusual about John compared to the other Gospels is that most of John takes place not in Galilee, but where? There's a city that most of John takes place in. Jerusalem. Most of it takes place in Jerusalem, which is very odd, because in the other Gospels, we have this long ministry of Jesus, and then he makes a journey to Jerusalem, and then he's in Jerusalem for that last week of his life. But uh, we know that he visited Jerusalem on other occasions. In fact, his parents took him when he was a 12-year-old boy, and they took him when he was a very small a child, uh, for ritual dedication to God. And so he had been to Jerusalem many times, even though his parents uh, lived away from Jerusalem, lived uh, in <clears throat> Galilee. But presumably he visited Jerusalem many times in his life, and like other Jews in Galilee, when he could, he took the opportunity to go to the big feast days, the big Festivals would probably be a better name for us to call it. The week-long festivals that they had, Passover and Tabernacles, for example. And this is one of those cases where if you look at uh, chapter 7, as it begins, um, this is in verse 2, the Jewish festival of Tabernacles was near. At least the, uh, the NIV the new NIV, the 2011, I don't know if, the, if the 1984 uses the term festival or not, but it seems like a good choice to refer to a week-long celebration took place. This today is, in fact, an important day to Orthodox Jews. Does anyone know, if, if you were an Orthodox Jew, you would not have gotten your car and come here tonight? 
you'd be doing something else. Does anybody know what you'd be observing? Uh, close, Yom Kippur. This is Yom Kippur. It, it starts this evening, starts at sundown. I don't know if they're, if they're technical about that, if like right now you wouldn't think it started or if it sort of starts around 6 o'clock or so. Uh, because the, the Jewish day from antiquity began the evening before and goes uh, from evening to evening instead of our day goes from midnight to the next midnight. But uh, the days were arranged a little bit differently. And so it's actually the uh, 16th of September is the day that they observe it. That means it starts tonight, because tonight's the beginning of the 16th. And uh, what is Yom Kippur? Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement, yeah. Uh, an extremely holy day. And so any of you that were Jews, would, if, if you were Jewish... Uh, you would, and uh, Orthodox in your practice, you would be observing that and uh, not here. You wouldn't have gotten your car to go anywhere. Um, and it's fascinating that we're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't really like tabernacles because to us, a tabernacle sounds like a building for worship. And this is sometimes called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Shelters or the Feast of Tents. And so they, they went out and lived. And I, I can recall when my mother-in-law was staying over here at the Jewish home that uh, during, uh, it's called Sukkoth. Uh, there are different ways of pronouncing it, but I think the American way to pronounce it is supposed to be Sukkoth, and that is the uh, Jewish name, the Hebrew name, for the Feast of Tabernacles or Tents or Shelters. They actually built, in, when you walk into uh, the Jewish home, there's a little courtyard out there and they built a little shelter in the courtyard. And I'm sure that there will be one there by next Wednesday because uh, next Wednesday is when that feast will begin. So this is a pretty important month because they've just had Rosh Hashanah the New Year's Day, and then they're now having Yom Kippur, and then they're going to have an eight-day celebration of the Festival of Tabernacles. What was Tabernacles or Booths about? Why would they go out and, uh, you know, what? I'm, once in a while, um, my <coughs> both of my kids, but uh, in, in Amy's case, they go to parks and camp out. But uh, in Stacy's case, they just take the kids out in the backyard and set up a tent and spend the night in a tent. So why do Jews go spend the night in a tent or some kind of shelter or something like that? Because it has nothing to do with the times in the wilderness. It does. It has connection with times in the wilderness. It also happens to be at the harvest time, at the end of the, the summer harvest. And so it seems to be sort of a combination of a harvest festival. And sometimes it's speculated that it might even go back prior to the wilderness wanderings, prior to the Exodus. And the, uh, the farmers would, because they were working all day constantly, they would build something out in the field. 
and sleep there at night and get up and, and uh, continue working the harvest. So sometimes it's suspected that the, uh, that the booths or the shelters were actually being used prior to the time of the Exodus. But when the Exodus comes in, then uh, what is the, the feast that celebrates the Exodus itself? Passover, yeah, which uh, celebrates the passing over of the Jews by God, and, and then uh, that leads to the Exodus. But during the Exodus, they had to live in temporary shelters that they could move from one place to the next. And so this uh, feast reminds them uh, of that experience in the Exodus. In the Gospel of John, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and half of chapter 10 are all focused on this one time. So Jesus spends most of his time in the Gospel of John in Jerusalem, but it's usually for a feast, and maybe he's there for the full week. He was sleeping. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but he's sleeping, yeah. He, he's been out threshing, and, and he's sleeping there rather than going back to his house. Well, if he was a strict Orthodox Jew, he should not be doing that. And so Nancy and I took a special trip. Uh, it was about 30 years ago, I think, and went down to Miami for her birthday. And I booked us in an Orthodox Jewish hotel. I had no idea. So we get there on Friday afternoon, evening, and they put us in the wrong room. And I'd specified, you know, room with the ocean view. And they said, you can't move rooms now because it's already the Sabbath. And so when the Sabbath's over, we can move you. Uh, that won't be till tomorrow night, but tomorrow night we can move you. And so the, during, during that whole 24-hour period, the elevators were all set to open on every floor so you wouldn't have to push a button. And all the vending and uh, anything like that didn't take place. You couldn't pay for anything. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't go up and buy candy bars or whatever. Well, I, I wonder if in modern times, we're wandering too far off into this, but if you could, uh, in modern times, set a stove in the Sabbath mode but have it where when you moved nearby it, it turned on. Our, uh, our copy machine does that. We go in the copy room over at HST, it turns on. So if it's been sitting there, it senses you came in the room. It doesn't say, welcome, Alan, it's good to see you, but it does turn on uh, so that uh, it'll be warmed up by the time you're getting over closer to it. Well, to, to make a useful point out of all this, there are certainly times when I am envious of those who, do, who will not go anywhere, make any trips, do anything from Friday evening till Saturday evening, and they're going to do that every single week. And there are certainly times when I think uh, not only do I envy doing that, but I think I would be a better person, a lot better person if I did that, if I had these Sabbath times when I couldn't turn that TV on, I couldn't turn the radio on, I couldn't get on my phone and look for things on there. Um, I just had, you know, me, myself, and God, my family, and that was it. 
There was nothing else. And I think I think I, you know, I see several people shaking their head. We we fill our lives so much that that Sabbath principle is uh, really something to wish we had. Well, let's look at chapter nine, and uh, here Jesus is in Jerusalem, and they find a man who is blind from birth, and. That would be a more difficult case for Jesus to heal than for someone who had been able to see, but was now no longer able to see. He was congenitally blind. And it introduces it with the discussion that the disciples apparently share the idea with um, some other Jews of the time that virtually any ailment that you have is a punishment for some kind of sin. And so they say, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? Now, it seems very strange to us that a person could sin before they were born, and yet there are some technical Jewish discussions in which uh, a fetus uh, whose mother went into an idolatrous temple and the fetus somehow showed an interest in the idol, could sin before they were born. And so the idea that it's possible to sin before you're born could actually exist and did actually exist. Did his parents sin or did he sin? And Jesus says, no, none of that. This is an opportunity for me to show what he says in verse 5. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so here he's using light in a metaphorical sense, and yet a physical sense as well, because here's a man who has lived in absolute darkness for all of his life, and Jesus is going to cause him to be able to see the light for the first time. In verses uh, 6 and 7, it seems very unusual to us that Jesus would spit on the ground, make some mud with his saliva, and put it into the man's eyes. Uh, we'd probably be saying, please don't do that. Figure out some other way to do this. Go, he said, and wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, the pool of Siloam is a famous pool that is there near uh, the area of the temple and was probably used at the time as a place for ritual washing. When you were going up to the temple, you'd come on a trip, and, and you were, um, you, it, actually it's not, it doesn't have to do with personal cleanliness, it has to do with spiritual cleanliness, that you become spiritually clean to go to the temple. It would not seem as bizarre to use spit to ancient people, there's a story told by Tacitus, by Suetonius, and by some other historian about Vespasian, that he was approached in Egypt by a blind man who asked him to put some spit in his eyes that he might be able to see. And Vespasian consulted with some people, and th this is perhaps one of the reasons you might not believe that it, if, if the person had not been blind since birth, it might be an easier case. He consulted with these supposed experts, and they examined the man, and they said, well, he has, 
He hasn't been blind and here for a long time. Maybe you ought to try it. If it works, it'd be great. And if it doesn't, nobody really expects you to heal a man this way. And he does it. He puts some spit in this guy's eye, and the guy's able to see. Um, I'm not saying that actually happened. It's a very widespread story, though. And Vespasian uh, comes along around 70 A.D. or so. Uh, he, in fact, is leading the armies against Jerusalem when he's called to go and serve as uh, emperor. And then um, Pliny the Elder, sort of ancient scientist type, uh, talked about the great value of spit as a curative in the eyes. And so there were people in ancient times that thought this wasn't such a terrible idea. And Jesus does it on two occasions. Of course, he's perfectly capable of just saying, see, and not doing anything like this. But there are a few times when he does something that looks kind of ritualistic, and here he, uh, he gets some spit and he puts it in the man's eyes. And he is able to see. The man went and washed and he came on seeing. And so there are people that are saying, oh, that's the guy that used to sit and beg all the time. No, that's not the guy. And uh, then they ask him in verse 10, how were your eyes opened? And he said, the man that they called Jesus made some mud put it on my eyes, told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. He had not seen Jesus at this point, because he was blind. Jesus stuck this mud in his eyes, told him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash his eyes, and so he didn't know what Jesus looked like. He wouldn't have known what he sounded like, but he wouldn't have known what he looked like. And so he, they say, where is he? He says, well, I don't know but I can see. They take him to the Pharisee. Uh, that is, the man that bore blind. And then we're told the real kicker here, which is the day in which Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. And so the Pharisees are upset by the fact that Jesus works a miracle like this on the Sabbath. Something that really surprised me this time when I read back to the text because I didn't remember this in the story. In verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. The striking part to me that I had forgotten, but others. And in the context, it's not just general people, it's other Pharisees. Some said, he's not from God, he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a sinner perform such signs? And so they, that is the Pharisees, were divided. Now it's very clear they have a dominant opinion, but if you go back to chapter 3, just a few chapters before, who is it that comes to the Savior by night to ask him the way of salvation and light? Judy said, Nicodemus, yeah. So there are some sympathizers. You know, and Nicodemus, it, when you follow through the Gospel of John, he seems to get a little bolder as he goes along. In fact, uh, it's at the end of not chapter 8, but maybe chapter 7 that uh, 
he stands up a little bit. And uh, yeah, in verse 50, the Pharisees are fussing about Jesus. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, who was one of their own number, that is a Pharisee, says, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find the prophet doesn't come out of Galilee. So there was some division. And we know one other guy that may have taken the same opinion as Nicodemus. Maybe there were four or five of them or something. But we know one whose name comes up at the end of the book. Who? Yeah, Joseph of Arimathea. So there's at least a couple of people among the Pharisees, among the Sanhedrin, the kind of ruling group in Jerusalem, uh, who, who are not willing to say that, uh, that even though he worked a miracle on the Sabbath, he is not who he claims to be. Then they turn again, that is the Pharisees, they're interrogating the blind man, said, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the blind man said, he is a prophet. They still didn't believe that he had been blind and, they were, and had received his sight until they asked for the man's parents. They're kind of people after my own heart. I'd be a skeptic too in a lot of ways. I would want to know, you know, is something being pulled over on me? So they, they call the parents in and they say, yeah, this guy says he was blind and now he can see. Is this your son? Uh, is this the one you say was born blind? How can he now see? And they're going to answer the first part of the question, but not the second one. We know he's our son and we know he was born blind. But how he is, oh, he's old enough. You should ask him. Why do they do that? Yeah, so you have the notion coming up in chapter 9 that you'll be put out of the synagogue if you acknowledge Jesus to be the Christ. And so they avoid that. So the Pharisees, um, part of the Sanhedrin leadership there in Jerusalem, summon the man born blind again. And they say, we know that this man is a sinner. And he says, he's not much of a theologian. He says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But I do know I was blind, and now I see. And they said, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And then he said, I told you already, but you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? His attitude is a little different than his mom and dad. Because his mom and dad don't want to even answer to a simple question, how does he see when they'd surely heard the story? But he turns into a real smart aleck at this point. I mean, he knows good and well they don't want to become his disciples. So why do you keep asking him, you want to become his disciples? And they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that Moses, that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't know where he comes from. And he, still being bold, says, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, but he opened my eyes. Now here he becomes a theologian. 
We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does His will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And their dismissal is, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you look to us? And they threw him out. And so we circle back again to the idea that his blindness is clear evidence of some kind of sin in connection with his birth, whether it's on the part of his parents or his sin. Are, are they sort of deliberately acting like they don't recognize him? Or are they just so involved in their own business that they, that they don't ever see him? Um, I haven't watched The Chosen, but Nancy and I started watching The Chosen last night. Uh, we started watching the first season. We haven't, we, we've gotten through number one. First season, first episode. So I'm woefully behind. How many of you have watched any of The Chosen? We started it. Okay. I am, I am way behind in watching The Chosen. So anyway, the reason I refer to it is that Matthew, in the first episode, goes back and forth from his house to the place where he collects taxes, but I doubt he would know anything about anybody on the way, on the way there or back. But it, now, in his particular case, he's just trying to keep hidden so he doesn't get beat up as he goes from his house to the place of uh, tax collecting. But uh, there are a lot of people, of course, who are just so busy with their own things that uh, they don't notice the people going around them. And so uh, the fact that they would go by a beggar day by day, who is a blind beggar, I guess I could ask the question, and everybody in here can answer for themselves, um, do you drive by a beggar nearly every day, and could you pick him out of a lineup? Because I, I drive by some of the same ones on a very regular basis. I probably could not pick them out of a lineup. And it's, it's not for a particularly good reason. It's because I usually don't look at them. Do you look at them in the eyes? Or do you look at the road so that you don't make eye contact with them. I mean, I just didn't speculate about answers. I could very well see how they might not know much about the blind guy. They just basically don't pay any attention, do the best they can to keep their eyes focused where they're going and not paying attention to that sinful guy that's over on the side begging as they go along. Yes, yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, people who were begging. Yeah, very well may have been. So here we're coming to the saying that I was focusing on for the night. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. That is, they'd thrown the the man who could now see out. When he found him, he said, "Do you believe in the Son of Man?" "Who is it, sir?" the man asked. "Tell me, so that I may believe in him." You wonder if he is somewhat recognizing the voice. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you, which is an interesting way of telling that it's me. 
And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. That's pretty strong language at that point. That uh, he not only comes to believe in him, but he worships him. He not only believes he's from God, that he's a prophet, for example, or a miracle worker like Elijah or Elisha, because you wouldn't worship Elijah or Elisha. Presumably, he has a much higher estimation of Jesus than perhaps he even spoke about to, uh, to the Pharisees. And then here's the verse, verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And all of a sudden, if it wasn't clear to us before, it's clear to us at this point that blindness is also being used metaphorically. That sight and blindness are being used not just for physical sight and physical blindness, but that in this context they're being used for spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. And it's hammered home with the next two verses. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him and say this, and they asked, what, are we blind too? Apparently they got the impression that's who he's talking about. And Jesus said, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. The layers in this statement are pretty, because we've had this thing from the beginning about he's blind and so he must be a sinner. His parents sinned or he sinned. The Pharisee is repeating that later. And then Jesus saying at the end, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But it's very clear that he's no longer talking about physical blindness. Um, that, that he has shifted to this uh, spiritual level with the imagery of blindness and sight. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. And the, the part that, that uh, kind of concerns me a bit about the end of this chapter and probably should concern everyone here because the, you know, the Wednesday night crowd is sort of the cream of the crop. You're the ones that are here every time the door is open. So you're the Pharisees of the church. <laughs> we're, all, we're, all, we're all in here, all of us Pharisees of the church. And... Um, the idea here is that you have to realize your spiritual blindness and depend upon Jesus and that the people, out of, out of the people he was around, you've got the, the disciples, Jesus, you've got the blind man who everybody thinks is a sinner, the Pharisees that most people think are great people. They're the cream of the crop spiritually. And it's the Pharisees who are blind and the blind man who can see. And so it's a great switch at the end. And it just makes us think about ourselves. Uh, and probably most of us, especially if you've, if you've been in churches of Christ for a long time and have sort of gone through the evolution that a lot of us have been through. Uh, I was around in the 50s and 60s. 
uh, from there till now. And I know I'm looking at some people in here who are not around the 50s. I'm not looking at many, but I'm looking at a few who weren't around in the 50s or the 60s. But um, we had some similarity to the Pharisees in taking up the technical things to defend our righteousness. And they do here. They don't want to believe in Jesus. And so even though Jesus heals a man born blind and they investigate it and they know that it happened, they hold to the law. If he did this on the Sabbath, he can't be with God. So the, the Sabbath rule becomes the most, it blinds them to what's in front of them because they're so concerned about the Sabbath rule. And then the same thing with the blind man. They're not going to learn something from a blind man because that man is steeped in sin. And so they use their superior theology to undercut what's plain in front of their face. And, and I do have some concerns about myself, about whether and to what extent I may do the same thing. And so, one day, I, I remember, I'm sort of doing to you what I remember Jack Reese doing to a crowd back in the, um, when was it that he was here? It, it was in the 80s sometime. He was here for a year. And I asked him to speak to our Bible school teachers. And uh, he got up talking to the Bible school teachers, and it, it was great. I thought everything about this talk's going good. And then at the end, he said, you are all the Pharisees of the church. <laughs> he basically said the same thing I just said. And I was kind of hacked at Jack. I thought, I didn't get you in here to talk to all of my volunteer teachers teaching our Bible classes and tell them they're the Pharisees of the church. But he had a point, which is that the most dedicated people, can't, we can be blinded to our own faults. And so I think this is a really useful saying for us to ponder in terms of why Jesus said he came. I've lost my page here, but I'm going to get right back to it. And that is in verse 39. I've come into the world so the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. But he's no longer talking about physical stuff. He's talking about spiritual stuff. Hope you have a great week.